Welcome to the Making a Runner podcast. I'm your host, Nick, a running specialist, biokineticist, and coach. And I'm a co-host, Davey, aka Davey on the Run. Through our shared knowledge and experience, we unpack the fascinating topic of running. We speak to coaches, athletes, subject matter experts, and everyday enthusiasts to help you improve your running. And ensure that you enjoy every step of the way, wherever the road or trail may take you. This is how runners are made. It's how runners are made, baby. Oh yeah. We live in a wonderfully big capitalist world and there's, 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 you know, people want to make you believe there are all these magical things you can do to recover. But, um, you know, I think, I think the way to think of it is, you know, there are lots of things that can help you recover, but there's sort of what I think of as the big three um, to recovery. And um, that's, uh, you need to sleep to recover. You need, you need to get some sleep. Uh, you need to eat to refuel. And then the last thing is there's uh, doing less. So it's going to take longer for some people, shorter for others to recover. And that important thing to understand is recovery takes time and it's going to be very specific to you. But then also be kind to yourself and be like, I've done this massive thing. Let me actually give myself some time to start feeling good again. And also like you've done it, you can do it again. You can get better. You know, it's not like if you take extra time to recover on it, it's not going to affect where you can get where your end goal is going to be. Nick. Oh, la. Davi. Day. Hey, Davey, are you recovered? I can walk. I can walk again. <laughs> can walk. Um, so, in terms of recovery, it's a hundred percent improvement because previously I could not walk. I'd say three hundred percent. Three hundred. I thought there was going to be amputations needed. I thought I was done, but I am walking. I am back from the Netherlands where I was forced to walk and do a lot of active recovery. So I saw a run or two in there as well. Uh, that was um, maybe not the wisest thing to do, but uh, you know, when you're in a different country, you gotta you gotta go out there and experience the beauty. It was only five k's, and it felt like death. But um, <laughs> did it feel bad? Hey, huh? it didn't feel good, Nicholas. <laughs> what did you feel? Like, tell me, did you feel pain, or did you just feel like lethargic? Uh, no, uh, no, my calves um, have been really bad, um, and then um, everything felt okay. My calves, my lower calves were like the main issue and then um i just obviously i didn't have that um that energy there mm. so a bit of obviously the fatigue and then just some muscle stiffness look i think it's normal considering uh you know the the, the event that you yes, took part yes, in yes. and i think that's why we we brought ant on the show today one he, of our one of our only ever guests to come back again which yeah, means yeah. which means he's great and which yeah. means people loved it yeah, for sure. Ant is a very smart guy. That's why we like to chat to him. He's also a down-to-earth guy. Yes. And he's currently studying his PhD and he's doing it on fatigue. Fatigue. So yes. he, uh, I thought he the would, F would word. Been, He was the, the <laughs> F word. The F word that no runner wants to hear. That's going to be, Leah, are you listening? That's the title <laughs> of this one. The F word. That <laughs> the F word of running. Yes. So guys, it was really a super insightful conversation. We touched on so many different great pointers of recovery, the importance of recovery um how fatigue affects our training and how it affects our mood and our progression through our running journey yeah, yeah so yeah. i think it was it was an excellent topic it was an excellent conversation and we're not going to speak about it too much more because it was quite a long one yes. but we hope you guys enjoy it we hope you you take home a lot from it and you start to apply some of these metrics and things that and speaks about because I, I really do believe that it can have a wonderful impact and a very positive impact on your running journey. Yeah. So without any further ado, here's Ant Clark and we hope that you enjoy the show. Enjoy guys. All right. 
Ant, thank you for being with us on the show today. Again. We, again. Another another return again. of a guest. <laughs> this one was due to uh, popular demand. We've had a lot of people say, we, we want Ant back. And, we, and and normally we go for like the, the famous people yeah. who have like big followings to like <laughs> increase our, our audience. And Ant, <laughs> Ant doesn't really have that big of a following, but people loved you, man. They absolutely loved the information yeah. that you had to share. Yeah, thanks, guys. I think yeah, my my private Instagram accounts of like you know a few hundred people. Um, they they probably they probably just pretty loyal listeners. I guess they're all from the sports community. It's probably just all them. I think um, they're all punt me forward a little bit. They're all suckers for the knowledge that you've got. I think that's what they want. They're craving that uh, ant knowledge. So are we here to give it to them today? Huh? <laughs> Yeah, no, hundred percent. No, see, see, see what I can do. See if I've actually learned anything in the last year of my PhD or so. Well, that's that, it. Uh, eh? <laughs> can add because that can add to to uh, the, the knowledge base that we already have. Brilliant. Because as I said to you off air, I mean, today's focus is really all about um, recovery and fatigue. And you know, you as a sports scientist, uh, especially now where you're at in the UK, doing your your PhD studying fatigue. Um, you know, you are the person to to know all these things about fatigue markers, best ways to go about recovery. And as I mentioned to you, you know, a lot of runners, I think are very blind to that. Um, they, they know that they should be listening to their body, but their plan says X and they want to do that and they want to impress mm -hmm. and they want to feel that feeling of, of progression, but they often end up building that chronic fatigue over time. And obviously that, that is a no, no in terms of, potential injury risk and neglecting progression that's one element of today's mm. discussion and then the other one i think there's a lot of people that are recovering from from comrades and we know here in south africa obviously a lot of our following they just came off a, a comrade special edition and i'm probably wondering whether it's it's the right time to start running again i know davey has has tried a few his body's feeling a bit horrible mm. yeah um, yeah no i i learned from last year um, but it was a, a really different experience for me. I, I went, I had a bit like, I definitely had chronic fatigue and I think it was a combination mm. of starting running too soon, but also being unwell when, when I ran that just, you know, the two together just didn't match up nicely. Um, but then this year I've just been a bit more acutely aware of it and, and I'm just also, I'm yeah. very interested to hearing what you have to say. So I've got my mental notebook out because <laughs> I'm definitely looking to <laughs> decrease my um, my fatigue, you know, as much as possible. But and 100%, yeah, uh, no. How, how important is it to monitor your fatigue? Yeah, I mean, obviously very important. I think I think a good a good place to start would actually be sort of like, you know, Let's not try to answer the question of what fatigue is just yet. That's a bit complex, but um, <laughs> let's let's sort of speak a little bit more about um, the recovery side of things and let that lead into fatigue. Um, in terms of like, why do we? I think the easiest question to start with is why do we have to recover um, from training? Like, what's actually going on that we need to recover? in the first place um and you know you've got to actually just think about what you're actually doing when you're doing any kind of sports training because i mean you mentioned you know runners don't know a lot about it but i think i think people in general athletes in general <laughs> don't know much about like what yeah. they're actually doing they don't think about it all the time they just want to get better yeah. like so many people and um so i think 
if we think about it, what we're doing when we exercise is you're literally just stressing your body. So you're putting some stress on your body. You're ringing alarm bells. You're actually <laughs> assaulting your body systems when you go out for like a run, a big run that you're not used to. Um, so you're ringing all these alarm bells on your body and you're actually beating it up a little bit. You're causing a little bit, a bit of damage to it when you go out there and your body then needs to respond to it. And so it wants to recover. So you've taken, if you imagine you've got like a glass of water, that's your body when you go out you're tipping some of that water out a little bit um and what your body automatically wants to do is it just wants to get that water back to that level that it was when you went out for that run and it is also quite smart in the fact that what it will try and do as well is it'll actually try to put a little bit of extra water in um so that the next time you go out for it you're better able to handle that and that's how we get better that's how we adapt to training so we basically put all the stress on our body when we go out we do a training run or something um and then we need to recover from that training to return to baseline but then the body thankfully also tries to super compensate is the word we use tries to add in a little bit extra and that's how we actually get better and better with training so the point is yeah is you want to train because you want to stress your body because that's how you get better but then you also need to actually recover from the training you do in order to see those benefits from the training. Um, there's like a whole fitness fatigue spectrum that people might talk about. It's a bit of a theory, but it's basically that continual balance of stressing your body and coming back to the point you were improving upon that and stressing your body, recovering, coming back to it. And that's overall the training process. So if, you, if you're just only paying attention to the training you're doing, um, you know, what do I have to do today? But you don't think about how do I actually feel today doing that? And how do I feel going forward based off the past three weeks of training or whatever, then you're going to be missing out on a lot of gains and also mm. potentially in the long, long run doing quite a bit of damage to your body. You can end up doing that if you, if you go a bit too, a bit too hardcore with it. But now there's quite a few different recovery modalities. Am I correct in saying that? I don't know if I'd phrase it like that. I'd say there's a lot of info out there on people trying to punt stuff on, on ways to recover. Yeah. Um, you know, we live in a wonderfully big capitalist world and there's, 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 you know, people want to make you believe there are all these magical things you can do to recover. But, um, you know, I think, I think the way to think of it is, you know, there are lots of things that can help you recover, but there's sort of what I think of as the big three um, to recovery. And um, that's uh, you need to sleep to recover you need you get some sleep uh you need to eat to refuel because two things you've when you especially in running when you go out for a big long hard run you deplete the fuel stores within your body but then you also create some damage and like microtraumas to the tissues and you want to adapt so you need you need material there to do it. Your body just can't conjure it up to, to get all those adaptations. So you want to refuel, but also put in that energy to actually build up your body and get fitter and stronger. Um, so there's your nutrition. And then the last thing is there's uh, doing less than, than what you're doing before. If you think about it, if you, uh, if you go and you run a marathon, you know, on a Sunday uh, um, and you try to go run a marathon the next day and then a marathon the next day and a marathon the day after that, by the time you get to Wednesday, you're going to be in a pretty poor state if you aren't, yeah. if you aren't accustomed to that. Uh, so, so I, I, yeah, I just wanted to ask, the, the big three. That, that, that's brilliant and that makes a lot of sense. But so I, I think it's relevant for, for me to just ask, I know we've done a lot of comrades content, but obviously it is post comrades mm. and just for my benefit and for a lot of people that have just run comrades, you know, I think those three that you've just mentioned are really great. But if you are doing all three of those and then you're still feeling fatigued, because obviously 
I think comrades is just you know another another beast or like just a level up. Mm. You know what Big beast? What, what would your recommendation in terms of you know how long should you you know be taking off? What should you be doing in that period where you you know are taking it easy um, and just really just maybe guiding us you know for something like an ultra marathon like comrades? Yeah, so I think we've got to go back because it, it, there's no straightforward answer to these things. We've got to go back to what are we actually doing when we train and when we exercise. So we're putting that stress on our body. So if you think take an event like Comrades, right, or, uh, 90 kilometers or 87.5 kilometers this year on the road, you haven't once done that in your training leading up to it because it takes such a big toll on the body. You can't do it in your training leading up to it. But you've now gone and done this massive race where you've gone like almost 30 kilometers further than your furthest run. So if you think about when we train, we always want to train a little bit above what we used to. We always think seeking that progression. It's, yeah. a, it's a principle of training. It's called progression. You want to do a little bit more than what the body is used to, and that places the stress. You take comrades, you've done a massive event. You've pounded tarmac for hours and hours and hours. And you've gone further than you've gone at least in a year if you haven't done comrades yeah. or longer if you haven't done comrades before. So you've really beat up your body and sort of like recovery, the way you've got to think about it, the more you exceed what your body's capable of doing or what your body's used to doing, should I say, the more you exceed that threshold of what your body's actually been doing, the longer it's going to take you to recover. Because there is a timeline to these things, like anything. You know, if you go, it, and it changes from person to person, really depending on like, you know, what they're actually used to doing with their body because your body adapts to what you do so what you're used to doing and it's going to be different for everybody and you know because everyone runs something like comrades at a different speed not everyone runs comrades all run different races yeah um who you are as a person like your genetics that's going to have a big impact of it some people just genetically recover much faster i've worked with some elite athletes that they like almost never display any kind of fatigue they never seem to get tired they never get injured i've had other elite athletes that like after the same session would be shattered yeah. for like two three days and that's that's at the elite level um so your genetics is going to have an impact and then your lifestyle and stuff as well you know if you are a young student in your like early twenties, you don't have any kids, you, you getting everything paid for, you know, you don't really have to get a hard, a stressful job or anything and you training and giving it your all, then you can sleep 10 hours a night. You can fuel yourself as much as you want to fuel. You can dedicate that time to it. You can dedicate time to actually relaxing, um, you know, just putting your feet up, doing something you enjoy, actually recovering and, you know, just taking your mind off of things. If you are, you know, in your mid thirties, early forties, um, you've got three kids, one of them's a baby, he's just been born, you're getting three hours of sleep a night, but you know, you've got a stressful job, you've got to provide for your family, that person's going to have a lot more on their plate. So their whole recovery spectrum is going to be different. So it's going to take longer for some people, shorter for others to recover. And that important thing to understand is recovery takes time and it's going to be very specific to you and your lifestyle and who you are mm. as a person and how you're feeling. And so probably one of the biggest things in terms of how do I recover to the best of my abilities is to really get to know yourself yeah. um, and to know, you know, what's your current situation in life? What can you do? And then sort of working around that. So trying to get those three big things in there, mm. like I said, and then if you can do other things that'll help you, you know, that you feel are really good for you, like, you know, people like foam rolling or massage mm. or they're like ice baths. Um, you know, some people enjoy saunas. There's all these hosts of recovery modalities. You can do those things if you have the time for them. But at the bottom line, you've got to understand that like, it's going to take me some time to recover. Mm. 
And it's about how do I actually feel and just being at peace with that. Because the second you're at peace with it as well, you've taken a big load of stress off your mind and that's going to help you recover a little bit faster as well. Yeah, and I, I like your explanation of that. And I like yeah. how you bring it back to, to the basis of what what is stress on the body and how the body handles with that. Mm. Uh, I've got a comment on, first of all, I think it also matters a lot in terms of how you cross that finish line or how much you yeah. broke yeah. down your body on that mm. race um you know if you if you're someone that had a strong race yeah. ran ran well came across the finish line feeling strong didn't collapse was able to walk the next day already uh you know you you're gonna recover a lot quicker than mm. someone that cramped for 40 yeah. kilometers and suffered all the way to the finish so i think that that matters a lot but over and above that i also just want to get into the um, the nitty gritty of the little modalities that you did mention, because I know mm. obviously you didn't mention those as uh, as your primary modalities, just simply because the scientific evidence behind them is is probably not as as concrete as the others. But what what would you classify those as? So like you know a lot of people believe in cryotherapy, uh, you know plunging in in, in, mm. in cold water or sauna and all of those. What is the current research on that? I'm also I'm also steps like like uh, very close to buying myself an ice bath, <laughs> but I, but yeah. there's one flaw in my plan, and is that I hate getting cold, <laughs> but I really like. Oh, the, yeah, that's part. That's all part of ice baths. You got to almost <laughs> mentally train yourself to be able to do it. Um, yeah, so all those. So I would call those things after the big three. I'd call those like you know those big three or need to haves. If you think about it, everything else is like a nice to have kind of thing, and um, you know like people think, oh, maybe there's not as much robust science and stuff around it. These, these, a lot of these big ones you hear about are being studied by lots of people and there's lots of evidence building up for them. Um, so if we just start going through the list, so let's talk about like manual therapy. And for that, I'll include both like massage and foam rolling in it. Um, you know, like manipulating the muscles, people like to use that term. Mm. Um, but basically just manual therapy, what that's been shown really to do is predominantly to help with like your perceived pain like your actual perceived DOM, so your delayed onset muscle soreness. So let's not even like think about comrades. Let's just think about like a heavy gym session or a really heavy interval hill session that's really broken you down a bit. You know, you saw for two to three days. Um, foam rolling and massage might be good for like actually just helping you feel a little bit less stiff. There's some very limited evidence in certain sports potentially of helping you say jump higher the next day than you would have if you didn't have that. So we call that like sort of neuromuscular fatigue, neuromuscular recovery, but the evidence is not so strong for it. It's mainly just going to help you feel a little bit better, but it might not necessarily improve your performance and it might not necessarily help with like, say if you've chronically been breaking yourself down to so say you've had a really hard training block of like two, three weeks, it's not necessarily going to change how you respond to that training block or make you fit or like, recover overall faster you just feel better which you know if you wanting to push hard in a training block can be great because if you feel better you can go and achieve you know mm, yeah. push your training more. to a higher level you know you can push more um so that's your manual therapy and i think a big thing that i also sort of advocate for it is if you enjoy it you know because some people love it some people hate getting massaged um if you do enjoy it then it's great because you're feeling good and if you're feeling good you like sort of de-stressing you're relaxing and i think that's a really important component of recovery that people don't talk about a lot is your actual sort of like mental state and yeah. psychological state because if you're de-stressed and relaxed you automatically recover foster <clears throat> so i think that's pretty good and what about if we talk um, about probably another one that sorry yeah. just to jump into that one with the manual therapy would stretching also fall fall in there 
Um, I wouldn't call stretching it. I'd call that, yeah, a bit of a, like, especially like passive stretching, like a passive recovery modality. I wouldn't classify stretching in the realm of like recovery at all. Mm. It might help with your DOMS a little bit, but that might also just be more psychological, like really psychological helping with your DOMS than anything else. Um, certainly we know that like you can, you can stretch all you want. And if you've really pushed hard, it's not actually going to make really add much to the timeline of how stiff you feel in the days to recovery. I want to make that point Um, there because I think, you know, especially when I deal with a lot of people that come through to me and, and feel bad because they say, Oh, I haven't been stretching. mm. I haven't been doing enough stretching. And I'm just like to them, you know, if you do have five minutes in a day that that you probably shouldn't be spending that five minutes doing your stretches because it's not going to make a huge difference to the, to the outcome. (laughs) Um, Can we quickly just create an understanding of, you know, like like you say, a normal byproduct of, of training is stress. Uh, Also a normal byproduct of loading muscles is tension. So that would be tightness in the muscles. Am I correct? Yeah, to an extent, it you know it all depends. Like it, normally, if your muscles have like really tightened and seized up, often it's it's you're doing stuff that like you're quite exceeding what you're used to, you know. Um, and if you know, if I think about like I've worked with elite athletes and sort of like non-elite athletes and and some I remember like some cyclists I've worked with have like the supplest legs I've ever like worked with with manual therapy in, in, in my life and i can't believe it because these guys are cycling 150k like every day but it's because they're so used to it that their their body's like super conditioned to that whereas um you know most of us like we're sat at desks and stuff all day and there's there's a number of things that are going to add to like that tightening of the muscles that we talk like where the muscles shorten so mm. you're not really exposing them to a big range of motion plus you don't you know get all the recovery time and time to adapt like an elite athlete to your training. And so when you're training, like if I go to the gym now, I know I'm going to be stiff for like three days after I go to the gym. Whereas when I used to like be more of a competitive athlete, I could go to the gym and not feel stiff at all the next day because my body was sort of like conditioned to do that. So I think a lot of it for the general population as well is you've sort of just exceeded what you really used to because it's so hard to get a consistent training plan and whether you're, you're like super fit, super adapted to your training and like you can just cruise through your training plan and like not get that stiff and tight. Um, but yeah, literally stiffness is also down to definitely what ranges of motion you move through. And when I talk about a range of motion, it's literally like if I were to lift my arm up above my head as a clear example, you know, if I can only get like, you know, my biceps are like in front of my face, then that's a smaller range of motion. Then if I can reach all the way up above my head and get my bicep to my ear, you know, just it's the degrees that your joint can move to. Um, your body adapts to what you do. If you don't move within a certain range of motion, ever in training you can't suddenly expect to move in that range of motion and i think a lot of people forget that especially like regular runners and stuff you know you're sitting at a desk all day when was the last time you were like having to like wrestle with someone when you're a kid or climb a tree or you know like duck under some bushes or something or fences all the things when you play and you move around when you're a kid and you naturally supple already you stop doing those things you stop moving as much as you know you were when you're younger and you tighten up Oh, brilliant. Thanks, man. So, so, so you mm. mentioned manual therapy, uh, you were going to get onto the others mm. in terms of baby cryotherapy. Yeah. So cryotherapy, or should we just call it cold exposure, cold yeah. water, cold water exposure, cryotherapy, I'll group them under the same thing. So it's exp- exposure to cold. Um, and this is quite a, quite an interesting one, quite a cool one because, um, you know, some things that have been shown for it, especially that what we can definitely say is it reduces 
like the amount of inflammation that you'd have post-training. So we, we know a direct mechanism for why it would make you feel less stiff. So it does that. So you, if you have had like a really hard training day or you've had a hard training block and you go and you sit in an ice bath for like three to five minutes, you are going to probably feel less stiff the next day. Your muscles aren't going to be as sore. And on top of that, your muscle damage markers will also have dropped as well. Whereas like something like foam rolling, your muscle damage markers might not have dropped, but you feel better for some reason. We don't know exactly why yet, but like you, you, you feel better. This, it's like you, you both feel better, but there are some markers showing as to why you would feel better the next day. The thing I will say about cryotherapy is, is that if you think about it, we actually need inflammation to adapt to stuff. So this is something not a, a lot of people might know. Um, is that like when you train, you stress yourself, your body sends out signals everywhere like saying that you need to adapt and that signal often comes in the form of inflammation and inflammation then sends blood and nutrients and protein and carbohydrates and stuff to your cells and to those areas that need to recover and repair. And that's how you actually recover and repair. So if you limit your total amount of inflammation, when you're trying to train, you're limiting that, that like actual adaptation response. So while, yeah. So while ice baths may be fantastic, especially after something like a Comrades where you might have been cramping for like 30, 40 Ks mm. and you're broken and you, you need to try and walk to work in the next couple of days, um, that's an ideal situation to have, it, have an ice bath in that should like help you feel better faster might not necessarily get you running really well faster mm. um, in terms of that complete neuro like sort of nervous system recovery but you definitely should be able to like walk around work and stuff a little bit faster if you ice bath um, another another great place to use it in is if you ever do like a multi-stage race like you know a lot of trail runs or stuff that have like multiple like two three days of running in a row getting an ice bath and after that or like cycle races as well they love multi-stage mm. races and cycle races getting ice baths and after that fantastic absolutely fantastic you've trained for this thing you're trying to peak for this thing you want to feel good the next day when you have to go again getting an ice bath is going to help and then um i mean like something else it does a bit as well um and you know gets talked about quite a bit and people get really excited about it but i think you know it's just you get a bit of a dopamine response um to it so if you get that cold exposure you know um it sucks at first, but then when you get out of the cold, mm. people often feel really exhilarated and their mood gets lifted. Um, and that's because the feel good hormone in your brain, dopamine is just like pinging off everywhere. It releases a big rush of dopamine. Um, probably because it's such a horrible experience. The body's like, well, we need to get something going to make us feel better afterwards. So it should make you feel good as well. Um, some people like to read a lot into that as well. I mean, the evidence isn't long-term what effect that's going to have on you, but in the short term, mm. at least you should feel good afterwards. And, and um, if, I mean, if I sprain my ankle or, you know, hurt a muscle, I, I'm going to ice it, right? And from my yeah. understanding, what it's, that's to reduce inflammation. Is that, yeah. Is that correct? So, then, so this in, is a really interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like the, you're talking about the RAS protocol, which is like, rest, exactly. Ice, I was just about to elevation. say that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, the rise, so you, you rest when you get an injury, uh, you know, like you've twisted your ankle, you're not going to go run a marathon on it straight afterwards. Rest, ice to reduce that inflammation, compression, so you compress it and elevate it. Um, that whole theory has come under fire quite a bit. There's, I mean, there's still some debate over it. I'm not at the cutting end of research in that, so I'm not going to comment too much, but definitely there's less evidence for icing yourself immediately after injuring yourself. That being said, I do work in professional sports and like if we're in, a, in, in team sports and if we're in a team, like a tournament setting or something, or you're definitely going to ask like a big yeah. game coming up. 
you put that ass on because it does reduce the pain. It reduces the swelling and that enables you to actually move because when a joint swells up, let's use an ankle, for example, if your ankle balloons, you're not getting a lot of movement out that ankle. So if we need that ankle to move all of a sudden, then, mm. then ice is going to help. But if you're thinking about like long-term health for the average person, say you're a runner and you've twisted your ankle, you know, that ass might not help as much as we think in terms of if you reduce that initial inflammation, because the goal then, if you're a regular runner is you actually want to get back to your running as strong as possible. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas if you're an elite athlete in a tournament, the goal often sadly is you, you want them to go out and win, not, not, uh, you want their leg to be healthy 10 years from now. Yeah. I also think with that in mind, it depends. It's very specific to, to the condition that you suffer. So like say if it's a sprained oh, ankle, yeah. right, it's, it's a superficial damage that you, you, if you do get some ass on it, it might actually take some effect onto the area that's damaged. But say if it's like a, if it's a deep muscular issue, you, you, you mm. asking superficially, it's, it, it might not actually get down to, the depth of the issue is that correct yeah a hundred percent i mean i think if you plunge your leg into into like ice it's it, it will eventually have some kind of effect it can reach quite down <laughs> deep down inside there but i think you know you want to get that healing process started often yeah there, there is another aspect as well though say you, you've got an athlete and they're in an incredible amount of pain ice might help with the pain so you might also just do it for that mm. um and be like well you know if we give up five percent of this initial healing process it's fine because this poor person's like in agony yeah. so, um, and you want to help alleviate some of that so you want to keep asking something about us no, or no, i've no, got no. another so so you've spoken about us um what about heat mm. so heat's an interesting one um <laughs> in terms of acute recovery, I probably wouldn't recommend it so much because like, you know, like say you've done something like comrades and you've now just beat up your body. Like you can't believe you've probably dehydrated a bit and you've suffered quite a bit of heat exposure throughout the day because, you know, you go run out in the elements, especially in like South Africa, we live in a hot country, mm. you're getting heat exposure. Then what you're doing is you're immediately going and exposing yourself to heat it could be quite dangerous. Um, there are things such as heat injury, heat stroke. Everyone's heard of that. Mm. And you can give yourself something like that. So I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't really call it an acute recovery tool. It's something though that could complement your training because what happens is when you get into a sauna, you, you once again stressing your body, but with a heat stress now and your body releases these things called heat shock proteins. And it seems to have some be beneficial effect for like adaptation overall. So it might help you like get, you know, help your hormones and your strength in the long term. But in terms of if you've had a really hard hey. session, I wouldn't recommend you go jump into jump into a sauna immediately afterwards because you could do some damage to yourself, especially I, if you if you aren't being watched over by a medical professional. I'm just thinking Davey after this he's gonna go buy an ass bath and a sauna. Hey. He's gonna have to speak to Kath very nicely. <laughs> I think I wanted a sauna for ages. <laughs> some some good health benefits apparently yeah. as well too. I think which is also something that I wanted some clarity on, which I think a lot of people are maybe a bit unsure about, is um, compression garments such as obviously your, yeah. you know, compression um, legs, legs, your comp your calf sleeves, yeah. and then also more recently the compression boots. I mean, Nick and I have both got a pair. I'm gonna admit that yeah. I don't know a hell of a lot about it. I just you know obviously yeah. follow follow a trend and I, I, I think you know it does do some sort of good but <laughs> great great to hear it from you 
Yeah, so, um, I mean, I would consider compression garments and compression boots, even though they both have the word compression in like slightly different categories. A compression, like those compression suits that you wear, I'd almost consider them a bit more like manual therapy because if you think about it, you like it like progressively squeezes often with the different settings up there. So it's almost like you're getting a bit of a massage. Mm. And then, you know, like same thing as the massage can help reduce your, your like immediate sort of muscle soreness, delayed onset muscle soreness, help you feel better the next day. So if you enjoy that and you have them, um, you know, crack on. We, we use ours with, with the netball players that I work with quite often. We have a pair of like normal techs around, but it's more, it's more of like more of manual therapy and like an at home manual therapy, which is really convenient. And also not like foam rolling where foam rolling, you've got to actively foam roll, you know, that you can just sit and watch TV. So, sorry. Kind of getting a massage going. Sorry. And just, you, you mentioned foam rolling and I know we mentioned it before, but quickly yeah. while we're on that topic, I think foam rolling also is something that a lot of people don't quite get right because uh, foam rolling, you can mm. obviously do too much foam rolling and actually end, end up, you know, bruising muscles and all of that. So ju- just quickly, yeah. you know, from your experience, like how would you guide somebody who's foam rolling and doesn't know too much about it? You know, what's enough and, and what should you be looking out for in terms of overexposure? Um, that's actually a fantastic point because I think that is something people do. Um, <laughs> they get really hyped. Like when they think this is going to help me, they think more is better. Yeah. Um, and they just gun for it and they smash like a lacrosse ball or a foam roller or a barbell onto their leg. And then they wonder why I had, do I have a sore quad, um, for the next three days? Um, yeah, from what the research has shown, it doesn't actually take that long to get the beneficial effects of foam rolling, like 30 seconds to a minute tops is enough on a muscle group to get some kind of beneficial effect. And you don't, you don't have to destroy yourself to do it. Same thing with like, it applies to massage, you know, like you don't have to completely smash a knot over and over again to get like a beneficial effect for like pain and comfort over there and yeah. like relaxation. Whereas like there's a lot of techniques where people almost get like metal tools and they scrape you and then mm. uh, you get you get like this actual blood response. What it does is it breaks up the little tiny blood vessels in your skin and your skin goes red afterwards. And then people say, oh, you see, that's all the blood flow going to the area. And it's not actually, that's just blood in your skin. Um, so so it, doesn't, it doesn't hold any extra benefit. It's not a dose. We call that a, like a dose response. The more you take of something, the better you, you feel, the better you get. It's not dose dependent. Yeah. Um, so 30 seconds to a minute per muscle group, 30 seconds to a minute on your calves is probably not going to be very different to like 10 minutes yeah. on your calves and then does that um, also people enjoy it does that also work the same for like a myofascial release because i mean those are are very painful well, like lana therapy yeah I, i'd say the same thing even even for like there's like no shown added benefit for it if you enjoy lana therapy though like some people love getting like and not like completely Sick, worked sadistic. out <laughs> Cheapest. Nick, Nick, I, Nick I taught cry. me this one. enjoy the pain of it. Um, and if, if you enjoy the pain of it and like, you know, you can still go hard the next day, then like you can crack on. But I wouldn't ever pressurize like being someone that manages athletes. I wouldn't pressurize an athlete into getting it saying you have to get it in order to feel better. Mm. It's, it's sort of my point. So if you love it, you can crack on with it. But like, don't think you know, 30 minutes of foam rolling, just your calf, your left calf is going to make your calf better than if you did it for two minutes and then moved on to your other calf and then yeah. your boots, it's going to be pretty similar. Brilliant. Um, but yeah, 
we were talking about uh, compression garments so before yes. we got into that. Um, so compression garments, yeah. So the whole theory there um, is they they technically supposed to help like your blood flow and stuff. So the, the original reason compression garments were invented uh, was actually for plane flights um, and especially for people with sort of circulation issues, blood circulation issues, gout and stuff like that. Their, their lower legs would swell up on airplanes, um, especially as people age, very common problem. And what they do is they, they squeeze your calves and they, they help these little muscle pumps in your calves get the blood up to, back to your heart. So it stops like everything from sagging into your calf and like creating swelling around there. And then people thought, well, maybe if we could do that, you know, for athletes, we could get more blood flow going. More blood flow means like more proteins, more nutrients and healing things into the calf and helping them out um, or arms or wherever people wear them all over the body or full body compression garments. Um, they haven't been shown to be as effective as as one might initially think based on all that because that logically makes a lot of sense like to 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 a lot of people um they don't have a huge effect they might once again help a little bit with delayed onset muscle soreness seems to be quite dependent on the person some people find a benefit some people don't um what i have seen in athletes though it, it might help some of them and it might just be purely psychological but if it helps mm. if you feel like it helps like if you're struggling with something like shin splints some athletes swear by wearing like they, they won't not wear mm. compression socks if they if their shins are a bit sore it helps them deal with the pain so that's a pretty useful one for that. If you, if you find like you get pain during running and you feel it helps, then then crack on and wear it. But I'm not going to say it's compulsory. I swear. Nick, it, Nick has got a, yeah. Nick's got a cheeky smile over here and I know oh. he has some comment oh. to make. No, well, I just know that uh, Davey's uh, compression sleeve certainly mm-hmm. has helped me in many different ways before. But My compression sleeve. Your compression that sleeve. That you've been using. That I've used once for a different, very different reason to compression. Helped okay. me a hell of a lot. Yeah, da- da- Davy seems to swear by his compression. Is, is, I just want to ask. Davey, no, I do not. That, that, do you just like <laughs> the like feel wor- of having it, or do you just don't want to get sunburned? Oh, comment? the sleeve. The sleeve. That's a fashion statement, man. Fashion fashion sleeve. <laughs> and yeah, fashion statement. Hey, if you look good, you feel good. <laughs> look good, go, feel but, good, uh, man. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not really an advocate for one-use compression sleeves. I don't think it's too good for the environment. <laughs> I don't think anything about the situation you're talking about was was uh, very green earth yeah, based. We're not going to share it. I think it was 100% cotton, though. No, it definitely wasn't. And I want to ask you. So you mentioned those three pillars, right? You mentioned uh, your yeah. nutrition, your sleep, and what was the third one? Nutrition, sleep, and doing less. Doing less. Actually taking time to recover. Uh, would, yeah. uh, doing less. So say, would something like active recovery fill in into doing less? Or is that something different that we're now talking about? So say now, as part of a training plan, you've got easier sessions planned, making mm. sure that you're doing your yeah. easy sessions easy. Or if you're a runner, like say, getting on a bike and just, and just spinning those legs out, yeah. how much benefit does that have to recovery? This episode of Making a Runner is brought to you by Burn Studios. We are excited to be partnering with one of the fastest growing activewear brands on the continent. Just like our podcast, Burns is a proudly local brand with the community at the forefront of everything they do. It's a place where people from all walks of life can come together as a collective and be inspired to live a life of motion. No matter the activity, Burnt is made to move. Become a part of the hashtag orange tag tribe and shop your favorite items online at burnt.co.za or at one of their retail branches in Stellenbosch, VNA Waterfront or Mall of Africa. So, um, I mean, this is one of those, it depends um, sort of answers. <laughs> and that, that's a lot of sports. It depends on, on who, who I'm actually talking to that's doing the active recovery. Um, so if it is less than you're normally used to doing, then yeah, you still, you're going to be recovering. 
and you definitely, and you're not going to be detraining because that's a big fear, right? Like the closer you get sort of to the envelope of human performance and that's within yourself, you know, the closer you get to your sort of like sports seating, your running seating that you get, the more stress you're putting your body under, but the more you've been doing, but then it doesn't take that much of a drop off for it to feel like a big drop off. So you can keep training a little bit, but train lighter and you're still going to be good. But if you stop training completely, say, then you might actually regress a little bit because you aren't providing enough of a stimulus to yeah. maintain your training, mm. like your fitness. Cause you, 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 you're trying to hold it up here and you need to keep stimulating yourself to stay there. But the second you drop off, then you drop off. So active recovery is going to play like a really big role there. And especially just in terms of deloading the legs a little bit, even if you've really overdone things and maybe you have to get on like a bike, like Nick mentioned cross training um, and get some like, you know, some, some cardio work in, but you, you taking the load out of your joints, you're not getting that impact of the road that can be really good. But then on the other end of the spectrum, if you're someone that's relatively new to running or even like sort of a decent way in, you, you've done a couple 10 Ks and you, you're looking at adding in like active recovery sessions, those active recovery sessions might actually be training sessions because you're adding in like extra volume on your week, you know? So for that type of person, I would recommend that, um, like say you've done a really big training block and you've mm -hmm. built up some fatigue. And I think, I think we need to get into that a little bit, that accumulated fatigue because we haven't yeah. spoken about yeah. it yet, yeah, for but sure. you've done a big training block, um, and you're feeling really tired and stuff. I wouldn't then like, add in active recovery sessions to help them recover. I wouldn't be like, Oh, go do your Tuesday interval work. And like on Wednesday, go and do like a bike session to help your legs recover from it. I'd be like, let's turn that Tuesday interval session into an easy run. Um, and if they're really, really bad, then you're taking like a day off that week and keeping the rest of the week easy. Um, and it's really playing it to the person, um, mm. how the person is actually yeah. feeding and the state they're in and then like sort of their training status. But I mean, like active recovery definitely has a role because you're still getting a kind of a training effect out of it, but you can be deloading at the same time, you know, doing yeah. things a lot easier. For, the, for this argument, say you're talking to me and say I crammed 30Ks yeah. into comrades. Quickly, just give me a, like a 10 second summary. How long should I be taking off? And what should I be doing? Oh, yeah. So you almost killed yourself. Uh, like you're taking your body into the realm of like a pro a probably proper danger, you know, like. You, yes, you, yes, like, we like know if this. You it, if, you kept on, if you kept on going, there is a point you get to where you just drop <laughs> and you don't get up again, right? Yes. Um, so the closer you get to that point, the longer you're going to take to recover and um you know it can take it can take weeks a month maybe more to, to like recover yeah. from from like a really hectic episode because you've traumatized your body now mm -hmm. you haven't just stressed it you've like you've put it under some proper trauma and i think what you got to do is you got to be quite forgiving to yourself you know be proud of the efforts you did as well i think give yourself a pat on the back because it takes a lot to push yourself that hard and i think to a lot of people that did comrades that's the experience they've had they've really you know they've gone and got that comrades medal and they've they've really pushed themselves but then also be kind to yourself and be like i've done this massive thing let me actually give myself some time to start feeling good again and also like you've done it you can do it again you can get better you know it's not like if you take extra time to recover on it it's not going to affect where you can get where your end goal is going to be in the sure. long run and i think that's an instinct lots of people have they think oh no i'm missing out on all this progression i could be going because i'm having to recover because i overdid things and it's like no 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 take what you've learned from that experience take the positives from it and then just take that chill time enjoy mm. it do some other activities that you enjoy as well and mm. slowly build yourself back up and you will come back stronger eventually then yeah. if you take the time i mean i was chatting to yvette van Zell today and i mean she takes you know as long as four weeks off after a, after a hard marathon effort and it just you know yeah. shows you like i think the elite level athletes are obviously more 
you know aware of you know how important recovery is you know social athletes like yeah. ourselves you know we dread missing out that you know we have fomo <laughs> we like yeah. we just want to get back to running as soon as possible whereas elite athletes actually are not scared of taking a month off because they understand that in terms of the fitness that you're going to lose and all of that it's not worth getting back you know sooner than you should be because you'll always get that fitness back and you'll get back to yeah. where you were but it's much more dangerous you know going back too soon when you're overly fatigued and you're just going to cause a lot of damage yeah, I, I mean, I think definitely, and there is something to be said as well. Like for the elite athletes, you know, running's their job, yeah. um, and so they probably look forward to actually getting some time off work um, <laughs> yeah. as well after those. Yeah, we do it for thing, fun, which is like something that we don't think about a lot for the rest of us, because you because running's a passion, you know, for for a lot of runners. It's, it's your passion, it's your hobby, it's your escape. It, it helps you deal with the rest of your life. Whereas you know, sure, elite runners are like super passionate. That's how they get there in the first place. You got to be super passionate, but like that's all you're focusing on. That's where all your mental energy is going as well. Mm. You know, is going into your running, the pressure to perform, the pressure from sponsors, the pressure you put on yourself because you want to achieve a certain level. It's massive. And so, you know, I think for them, when they get that release, they really take that release. That being said, I have also encountered a lot of professional athletes that they don't like to take that time off and they do freak out and you, you got to almost like teach them that it's okay that they can recover um, and they can take the time. But yeah, that is definitely a big thing. I think because, you know, then you think, as a, as a regular runner, Oh, I'm not doing this today. And you, you feel that difference a lot as well. You feel it in like your work life and stuff because you aren't getting your release. You feel yeah, worse yeah. Um, all the time. You actually, you actually almost feel maybe a bit depressed, demotivated about life in general. If you aren't mm. getting like your passion and your, your hobby. in. I think the thing that most social runners or well, well, let's call it social runners need to understand is that if they allow their body enough adequate time to recover, when they do come back to running, they, they road to returning back to where they were and building mm. back up even more than that is going to be a lot quicker. It's going to be a lot smoother. You won't take any setbacks in terms mm. of injury. It will just be overall a better experience rather than say, now if Davey had to try and go run again a week after comrades and just run through his pain, mm. which a lot of people do because they think, oh, well, if I, yeah. if I run through it, it's going to get better, mm. but it doesn't. That's that's yeah. then overtraining mm. to a point. Hundred mm. percent. That's that is one hundred percent correct um, over there. That is the that is the thought. And I think that's like a good point, sort of into like segue onto that accumulated fatigue because that's something we haven't spoken about too much. Sure. We've been quite focused on. We've we've done a really big thing, a really big event, and we've broken ourselves down, and we need to recover from that. And that's what what I would call like acute recovery or acute fatigue. You've very like in the short term overreached and you now need to recover and it can set you back a lot. But what can set you back even further is what you just mentioned there. Um, you know, if you don't allow yourself to fully recover from things, eventually it's going to set back your entire journey as a runner or as an athlete and can lead to those things. You mentioned that word overtraining, mm. um, and the other words like burnout that can get thrown around and where that comes from is we call it sort of chronic fatigue. So acute is in the short term, chronic long-term chronic's taking a long time over time. Um, and chronic fatigue is something that, you know, especially at like the elite level, but any kind of coach has to sort of work around and deal with, with the athletes, but the athletes themselves don't often think about it that much. Mm. And so basically if you think about it, if we go back to that analogy earlier where I, I had like the glass of water and when you, you um, <clears throat> empty out a little bit of that water with a training session, then your body sort of refills it a bit. If you go too soon after that and you empty out a bit more with your next training session, then you've got more to fill up. 
and you go and you empty it a bit more, empty it a bit more. And what we do in the training process, actually, and especially the better we get, the more we do it, you empty that glass quite a bit continually with each day's training. So say over a week's training or two weeks training or three weeks training, we call like them sort of like training periods or mesocycles or microcycles, if you want to get all sciencey on it. But basically over a training period, you continually depleting yourself and then you allow yourself to recover often with either a deload or a few days off. And then you bump and you refill that glass up even more. But if you keep going over time and you don't give yourself enough time to refill up that glass, that glass is going to get more and more and more and more and more depleted. And the longer you do that for, and the more you do it, the harder you train while you do it, the longer it's going to take for you to recover. So it's that same thing. The more you overreach in the short term, the longer it's going to take you to recover. If over a long period of time, Mm. you're just continually depleting yourself, it's going to take you much longer to recover. So if you only like say, like train really hard for two, three weeks, then it can take you probably about a week to recover and you're going to be fine. If we're talking in the realm of we're going out really hard, like all the time for like weeks and months or even years, some people go, some people go like years where they train themselves so hard to the point where they like have to take a couple days off. They take those couple days off. They get right back to it. They just go, keep going, keep going, keep going. We start getting into what we call like overtraining syndrome and eventually what we call burnout. And that's where you've chronically fatigued your body to the point where even if you go for a light run, it's going to be a setback to your body and it's going to be a huge effort for your body to recover. And burnout and overtraining syndrome is something that can take like, you know, not like three or four weeks to recover, but like three months to a year to two years to recover. The spectrum for overtraining systems, two years. I promise you I experienced this last year. It took me five months to recover um, after comrades. I, I, I think it was, you know, what you're talking about now. Was that, was that chronic fatigue, going back, mm. overtraining. And I, when I say it took me five months, I promise you I was, you know, sc- scratching my head thinking, what am I going to do? I was going to fly to Joburg and meet with a doctor that specializes mm-hmm. in fatigue because I couldn't run more than 50 Ks a week. I couldn't run more than 15 Ks. And I was just, you know, yeah. I was absolutely spiraling i didn't know what it was and i mean it was definitely you know that form of chronic fatigue uh, luckily i i, yeah. I leveled mm. out i think it's ironic that ant uses the the glass of water mine was empty <laughs> that, i was gonna Baby ask you what like happens water he just yeah. spilt it all out he just <laughs> poured it all onto the floor just like nah, i don't need water splashes it on the back of the neck and i'm gonna keep trading i see nick's gotcha in recovery <laughs> recommendations he's got a coach from runner's world one rest day of every mile rest. What, what's your what's your opinion on this? Sound advice? <laughs> because um, because let me tell uh, you what the calculation I mean, is for comrades, <laughs> just as a ballpark figure. That they reckon yeah, they're fifty six no, days. Like, <laughs> fifty six yeah, days. Fifty six days. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say have complete rest. So I mean that's where that nuance comes in. You know, people love yeah. to put a number on things. If there's one thing I've learned from from researching this from a PhD perspective for a couple of years is is everyone wants a magic number of how exactly, tired, how fatigued I sure. actually, and how long is it going to take me to recover from that? And what do I need to do to yes, do it? Everyone yeah, yeah. wants that clean, lovely, clean yeah. answer. And it's not clean. There's a lot of nuance. Mm. We're human beings. We live complex lives and there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Um, I think what you, you've got to understand, that's where that knowing yourself comes in yeah. is being aware of yourself and how how tired am I actually? How broken am I? Mm. And you know, there are signs and symptoms because it can be quite hard to recognize these things of when you are really shattered and when you are really in need of like recovery and still still trending on that. You're trying to come back up to that level you were before when you can push hard again. 
you know, and I think a few of these things would be like, you know, motivation is a big one. So if you are overtrained or say you are trying to get back into your running after a big event, like comrades, um, because you're going to be more susceptible to overtraining there and you're trying to get back in and you only rested like two, three weeks. And now you're a month into training and you're like, yo, I'm still not getting fit. But yeah. I don't look forward to my runs. Like every runs an effort. Every runs hard. I'm tired every morning when I wake up, I'm tired at work. I'm just not motivated as motivated to run, but I'm motivated to, get motivated to run. Mm. That's a clear symptom that like you're, you're probably still struggling and chronically fatigued because if you think about it, think about what it must take. If you're a passionate runner and you love running for you to suddenly be feeling like, Oh, running is mm, running's a lot guys. Like, oh. yeah. Why am I doing this? This is like, you know, those thoughts going through your head. Those are one of the thoughts that like one of the symptoms clearly for overtraining. Other ones are like, if you suddenly are struggling to sleep, you, you, you know, like different from your normal sleeping pattern. Some people always struggle to sleep, but if you have been sleeping normally and your sleep routine has been consistent and then suddenly for no other reason, you're still like struggling to sleep. That, that could be a sign that you're overtraining, mm. um, changes to your appetite. Um, <clears throat> you know, Mm. like like what you want to eat how much you want to eat um if that's suddenly you don't know you don't really know why but you're not looking forward to eating or you're suddenly eating way more uh they, i mean these can also all overlap with a whole host of other For things sure. but you know if you've been doing a lot uh, and then your social relationships as well is what i would say yeah uh, you're gonna say nick yeah i've got a i've got a comment and i've got something else back to relate to it um i just think you know a lot of mm. people get to that point and their natural thing is oh i must train harder mm. because that's uh mm. that I, i'm clearly not training hard enough and that's why i'm i'm losing not fitness so i'm not feeling good so that's mm. that's a cardinal mistake that people make uh but i like the fact that you brought it back to to the quality of sleep as well as your nutrition because you know we mentioned those as pillars and i think as mm. as a podcast we've covered nutrition pretty well in previous episodes in terms of you know post-workout uh during your during your day in terms of how much you need to get in and i think a lot of runners generally under fuel but i want to chat more yeah. particularly about sleep uh, because I think it's something yes. that is so underrated as a recovery modality. And I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on sleep. I know that you're a big advocate for oh, it, yeah. but when you speak about different qualities of sleep and say you're someone that doesn't sleep very well, what would be the advice that you would give to someone? So yeah, if you're, so sleep is one of these, these funny ones where, you know, it is, it's crucial to just recovery in life. You know, if you can get eight hours, 10 hours of, of really good quality sleep, you're going to feel massively different if you can only get four hours. That being said, I know people have busy lives and it can be really hard to just get sleep regardless of how well you naturally sleep. But that sleep quality um, we're talking about is sort of like, you know, if you were to imagine going to sleep and people always say like, you know, oh, last night was great. I slept like a log. Like you aren't even aware of any dreams. You aren't aware. Yeah. It's just like, head hit the pillow, close your eyes, suddenly you wake up, it's been like eight hours, you're like, wow, and you feel great, that was incredible, you know? Mm. Poor quality sleep would be like, you know, we, we talk about REM sleep, which is when you're getting into like your deep sleep cycles and like your actual dreaming cycles. Poor quality sleep is when you don't actually get into those cycles, so you're constantly tossing and turning, maybe you're frequently waking up, Sometimes you don't even need to frequently wake up. You just toss and turn throughout the night and you sleep. You never relax. And when you wake up in the morning, you also often feel like even though you slept and you can't remember waking up, like you still feel, you still feel groggy and that grogginess doesn't go away. Cause you can feel groggy when you wake up, but feel mm. good an hour or two later. That's fantastic. But you're still groggy the whole day. You don't know why you're struggling to sleep. Sometimes you can't get to sleep as well. Um, you just, you spend hours and hours and hours thinking and trying to get to sleep and it gets worse and worse. So that would be poor quality sleep. Um, there are strategies that we can employ to like really improve our sleep. 
And um, the number one thing I'd probably say with sleep would be like routine. Um, so trying to actually get a solid routine going of these good strategies. So what we want to do is we want to actually be consistently trying to go to bed and waking up at the same time. So you want to like pick a time, say you've got a regular work routine and you want to go from like, uh, runners get up early, especially in Durban. Um, but maybe like nine, 10 at night to waking up at like five, six in the morning. I know people are getting out on the roads at five, so that can be quite tough. But ideally, we're trying to squeeze in that eight-hour window. And I know it's really hard for people to get to bed before nine o'clock at night um, because, you know, families and and busy lives. Um, But picking a time, trying to stick to those times and then accepting it's going to take some time to form that habit. So clear, wake up, I mean, go to sleep, wake up times. Another thing to do would be looking at what we call sleep hygiene. So that's the actual conditions of the room we're sleeping in. Um, And these are all things like the actual sort of, we call it light noise of the room. So that's your light exposure. So you want it to be dark. You don't want lots of light influences, especially screens and stuff like that. Um, like blue light, if you think about it, so blue light is like the same frequency, like coming from the sun and from the sky, that's going to like wake you up. That literally stops your brain from producing, um, melatonin, the sleeping hormone. So it's going to get in the way of you feeling sleepy. And it's also going to get in the way of your sleep cycle. So you don't want lots of light exposure on you in the environment you sleep. Can that and, be, ideally, um... and I know this is almost impossible to achieve is you don't want a lot of blue light exposure before you go to sleep. So like the two, three hours before you go to sleep, if you're watching TV and you're scared, staring at a screen, you're getting lots of that exposure and it's going to throw off your sleeping. And, um, we have things like blue blocker glasses that people can use, but I, I mean, I've tried them and it's quite hard to get into a habit of that, but yeah, it's limiting your light exposure. Then your actual temperature of the room you sleep in, you want it to be cool. Um, you don't want it to be too hot. Um, I've seen, I've seen things before around 21, 22 degrees Celsius is, is seen to be like pretty good temperature to try and get to sleep on. Cause it's not too cold that you're freezing and you're waking up because you're shivering. Um, but it's also not so hot. So it's a good environment to sleep in actual noise, noise, sound noise. You want it to be a quiet environment. Um, difficult for people if they live by like a freeway or something. And then yeah, little tips and tricks you can do to help out with that. Uh, to cool your body temperature down before you go to sleep. Um, it's maybe a good idea to have like a lukewarm shower or a warm shower, not a cold shower, but like an actual warm shower before you go to bed. It almost works in the same way, sort of like sweating. Then when the water's evaporating it off your skin and um, when you get out, you actually have a cooling effect because your body's sending all the blood flow um, towards your skin and that's mm, cooling down with the outside environment. So if your room is cool and you get out of a hot shower, then your blood flow is all going to your skin. So it's going to cool you down a lot faster and that's going to help you get to sleep a bit faster. Um, and yeah, I'm just keeping it consistent, really. Mm, I, I'm, I'm loving this because I'm all about a, a nighttime routine, <laughs> as, <laughs> as a lot of people yeah. know. I, I have two. Get your I, face mask on. I, I, I have, yes, yes, there's my comment. Lavender oil. Yeah, well, no, there's my comment. As you mentioned, a dark room. If you don't have a dark room, buy, yeah. a, buy an eye mask. But what about <laughs> you? Obviously, you mentioned sleeping, and sleeping is so important, and eight hours and all of that. But something that like I think a lot of people try to do. Um, but also a lot of people don't believe in, and I didn't believe in this is napping, you know, because you yes. go, you go for a 20 minute nap and I could never nap. I can never fall asleep. You know, if I'm exhausted or whatever, I'm like, yeah. what's the point? I'm not going to sleep. But I think there's been a lot of science and you may, you can, you know, guide us here mm. about you don't actually have to fall asleep when taking a 20 to 30 minute nap. Yeah. Um, so maybe what are the benefits there? And if somebody's maybe struggling to get eight hours, is a nap something that you can you know supplement with? Yeah. So 
Fantastic point. Because I mean, I think not just, you know, I, th- I think it's a lot of people, a lot of people struggle to get eight hours. You know, it's really easy. I've, I've had experiences where I've tried to tell an athlete to get eight hours of sleep and they're like, well, I've got a baby at home, mate. So I'm getting two right now. Deal with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's really difficult to do. And then you end up, you end up sleep deprived in the day. Um, and napping is, is, is a, uh, like a really useful to, tool to combat that can really, they've been tons of benefits shown in terms of like improving your cognition, definitely helping with your recovery and stuff a little bit. Um, and just all around making you feel a little bit, a bit better, especially if you are mm-hmm. sleep deprived, if you're sleep deprived, it's going to have an even bigger benefit than if you have got your like solid amount of sleep, but even then it still helps. Um, but you're exactly right. One of the primary benefits of it, and one of the cool little tricks with napping is you don't actually have to fall asleep mm. to get a lot of those benefits. And um, 20 minutes is sort of that, that sweet spot. You don't really want to go over half an hour with a nap um, because what <laughs> happens then is if you do fall in, like you do fall asleep, you start getting worst. into those like sleep cycles. Yeah. And then you'll normally like wake up halfway through a sleep cycle. And, and you, you don't know where you are. Through a deep sleep cycle. Yeah. You've been run over by a bus and you're basically That's useless the for the rest of the day. And I mean, like, if you've got an afternoon run and you've taken an afternoon nap of 40 minutes oh, and no, you feel like you've, you've been done. hit by a bus, it's like, Good luck having a good good I, session. I want to ask. So you literally, yeah, because I want to say, and yeah, like yeah. for me, I, I might be doing it wrong, but when I try and nap, and I, I do every now and then have just I have do a bad enjoy night a nap. Sleep. Hey, do you enjoy a nap? I can't say I enjoy it because I wake up feeling worse than I did going into the nap. But <laughs> yeah. I I don't know if I'm doing it right. And this is you know I try and set a time on my on my phone to yes. give me an alarm and whatever in half an hour because I know it's gonna take me like ten minutes to try and fall asleep. And then I'm I'm worrying yeah. I'm constantly worrying about perhaps missing that alarm on or not actually waking oh. up and then I'm I'm almost overthinking the nap but that's when come on man yeah so sometimes I wake oh, up and man. I'm feeling worse but yeah. I have had naps where I've like uh, it literally you, you, saved you, you, my you, life you need to speak to your wife Leah <laughs> Leah you love a nap hey <laughs> Leah yeah. was the one that was like naps are the absolute necessity I think I'm just doing it wrong <laughs> yeah bro. No, no, well, you're right there. So, I mean, like, literally, I wouldn't even set it for half an hour. So, like, my my advice to someone trying to get into napping is, like, so, firstly, try to get the <laughs> same conditions a, that I mentioned when, you, okay. when you're sleeping. Yeah. So, cool, dark place. You don't want it to be lots of light noise, lots of noise. Not noise. a coffee you want it cool, shop. You want it dark. It doesn't have to be as cold <laughs> as, gym. Like, at night when you go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, in the gym. You can do it in the corner in the gym. Um, then literally just set your timer for 20 minutes. And I have that fear as well of sleeping through like a timer. So what I do is I set it on my watch and I also set it on my phone and I have them both nearby. So I have two alarms going off and I literally set it for 20 minutes. And then just knowing that I don't have to get to sleep kind of helps me already yeah. because then all I do is I close my eyes, I lie back and you just relax for 20 mm. minutes. You don't need to get to sleep. Just Power lie down. there with your eyes closed. Power I'll down. Think about what you think about. Don't try to think about anything in particular. Just like, close your eyes and just be there in the moment. And I promise you, it's amazing. Often you do fall asleep, but sometimes you don't even really fall asleep. You maybe just like start daydreaming about something with your eyes closed, mm. but suddenly your alarm goes off and you wake up and you're like, wow, I feel, I feel great. I feel right. incredible. I had a nap like, before, you, you before I came energy here. <laughs> well, I must say, Davey, you got some I great energy. before this, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, That's why you were late. You, got, you went through the alarm. <laughs> and I, I want to... <laughs> yeah, I, I had a pizza and decided to take a 15-minute nap. <laughs> I want to ask you also, is there any like supplementations that you could do with, with sleep? So like, say you mentioned melatonin, can you supplement melatonin yeah. to help you sleep better? 
Um, I've heard of people, I mean, like, I have heard of melatonin mm. supplements and I have heard that they can like increase the melatonin levels in the blood. I haven't actually read up that much about it. So I can't okay. tell you how much of a real effect it'll have on your sleep. Um, but maybe I'm not sure. I want to add in here cause yeah. I took meta- melatonin, um, when I was at, when I was in university and, um, it, it actually made me feel like I woke up and I felt terrible because I think I'd maybe too mm. much melatonin. I don't know, but from my experience, I really don't like taking it because you'll sleep well, but you wake up. I wake up feeling very groggy, and uh, that just, I think, like you said, depends on each person. But for me, I just yeah, I, I can't, I can't go. I can't. I don't feel normal throughout the day, and that ends up you know affecting things like training and all of that. Yeah, I think I think that's actually important to say because if you think about so melatonin is a sleep hormone, and if you're ingesting a hormone, if it does get into your bloodstream and it is having effects, though, then you're taking hormones from outside and putting them into your body. And what we know, like medicine and stuff, that can normally have an effect on how your body actually produces that hormone. So I don't know how it's going to affect you in the long Fair run, enough. but it could, it could. You, I mean, you could maybe take too much and, like you said, feel horrible the next day, um, or in the long run, it could affect your actual melatonin production. I don't know, um, but don't, that, that don't might potentially drugs. be a risk. <laughs> but that's also a good point in terms of I think people might think, well, if I want to get to sleep, then maybe I should take like sleeping tablets mm. um, because they do knock you out. Um, but the thing about sleeping tablets is I mentioned those sleep cycles, getting into deep sleep, getting into like REM sleep, um, medications to actually do it, like sleeping drugs. What it shows is they, they knock you out and they get you to sleep, but you don't ever enter into those cycles. So your actual quality of sleep that you're undergoing isn't as good as if you were to actually get to sleep. So it's not necessarily really the answer. If you, if you struggle to sleep and you think, oh, I can't get to sleep, just take some sleeping meds. That's why a lot of people, they take the sleeping meds and they get some sleep and it knocks them out at least so they don't have to sit awake mm. there all night but they never feel like I they've think actually you, had a good night's sleep. I think you also, like, it's very dangerous when you when you just become dependent on something to fall asleep. Like, I think from my yeah. experience, it's also just really something to be cautious of. Yeah, yeah. that's a great point. I mean, that goes with almost like any mm. anything um, any point. You know, around sport. It's like, if you, if you get super dependent on foam rolling i mean medications are worse because they have actual like drug effects on you but you often find that people can like get so attached to something that's a part of their process that maybe doesn't need to be there or like you can't have it there all the time you can't always have something you know like like a foam roller or something where you suddenly you end up the night before a big race oh i don't have my foam roller you start freaking out and then you just psych yourself out of your performance or or maybe you're running two oceans and you're used to wearing two compression sleeves and your friend (laughs) uses one to wipe his ass (laughs) (laughs) and then what yeah, great coaching. Great coaching. Uh, uh, yeah, it was. Um, mm-hmm. I was trying to streamline yeah. you, Davy. I was yeah, trying yeah. to streamline you. Listen, and I want to testing his adversity. <laughs> I want to. Well, comrades, just testing his adversity handling. Yeah, no, no, that's it. And it actually worked out better with yeah, one yeah. sleeve. So I think you yeah. should stick to one sleeve, true, Davey. True, true, true. Um, and I, I know we've been going for a while now, but I, I just want to ask one yeah. last couple of questions just to wrap it up in terms of the fatigue element that that, that we sort of started yeah. off with and and then came back to to sleep um what are ways say like now if you're an athlete and you don't have a coach but you're following a plan and you you sort of yeah. know that you are trying to overtrain a little bit like to get that compensation yeah. but you want to monitor somehow a way to monitor that fatigue and say like your your garmin yeah. or your watch that's on you is monitoring your sleep it's giving you your hrv your heart rate variability all of those things yeah. uh, what is a way that, say, a normal athlete can interpret data to understand their recovery status or fatigue status? Yeah. So, I mean, 
you know, the market's kind of exploding with a bunch of um, like fatigue monitoring tools at the moment. And you mentioned heart rate variability. So that's like your variation of like from heartbeat to heartbeat. It's the amount of time in between each heartbeat. And when you're feeling like fresh and snappy and you, your body isn't so stressed, there's quite a lot of variation between those heartbeats. And the more stressed under physical, like physiological stress your body becomes, um, the less variation there is and your heartbeat becomes very regular. So there's a lot of tools that are busy capitalizing on that right now. And like Whoop is probably the most famous one. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I've heard that like the Whoop 4.0 band, like their new upgrades actually quite accurate um, in terms of your heart rate variability, what it's measuring uh, compared to what it used to be. So there are all these apps and stuff um, that can do it. And, you know, if you, if you can afford to get them, they, they can be quite worthwhile. My recommendation is if you are going to choose one, I'd choose one that, you know, it, it measures that kind of stuff, like with your watch or with a, like an armband or um, one I know heart rate variability for training can you can even use it with your, your smartphone camera um, those are great but also ones that take questionnaires like questions from you like you know um, how are you feeling today out of 10 it's just a random random example of it yeah. or how stiff are you feeling today out of 10 and it builds up all that data and lets you know how you're tracking over time and then it gives you graphs and clear lines of like you know how you've been feeling over time um, I find those very useful it's, I find it more useful to have one that has a combination of measures so it's got like that actual objective like you know whoop has like a measure of strain and a measure of recovery that it gives you um that's cool but i also like it if they have ones that like they're saying like how are you actually feeling what's your opinion on how you feeling and using both of those to sort of gauge it because like you said you could be wanting to actually push a little bit hard on this block we want to call we call it functional overreaching it's where you specifically train harder than normal to deplete yourself a little bit and then eventually recover to get back so you wanting to feel tired you need to feel tired that's the whole goal of this training block mm. is you want to feel tired, but then your whoop is telling you, oh, you're under recovered. So, you know, don't train. It's like, well, maybe we need to take that into account. So tracking how you feel, but then getting that, how do I feel? And with those measures over time, you can start being like, oh, okay, I am still feeling tired, but I'm supposed to be feeling better now, but it's not coming up. What am I doing wrong? Or like, what should I change? Um, in order to like feel a little better, do I need to back off? Do I need to push harder? So yeah. tools like that. But I mean, not everyone has access to apps or even smartphones and stuff. So I think what's really important is is actually just starting to develop the habit of a mental check-in with yourself. I mean, it can be something as simple as having a little notebook, a little training diary, um, because you know everyone has training plans. No one wants to keep a little training diary of how they actually feel day to day. And you can fill it in the morning or fill it in the evening and be like, today, um, you know, you can you can have out of 10, like how I felt, you know, or how tired I am out of 10, how motivated am I out of 10, how sore am I out of 10 would probably be three good questions. And you fill that in day to day. And then also just any comments, like today was a great day, um, training went well, I had all my targets or training really sucked today. I couldn't keep with any of my like pace zones that I was supposed to keep. And you can track it over time. That's a really basic, really simple way to do it. It's just quite hard to get the discipline at first, I think, to like really undertake that. But that's a great alternative to like these fancy apps where you might have to spend a lot of money on it. You know, not everyone needs to spend that much money, um, you know, on the training and stuff. Brilliant. And thank you, man. I think it's been such an insightful episode. And I just want to reiterate the importance of recovery because I mean, you, you, you stated it and I'll, I'll second that. I mean, it's mm. all about overload, you know, that functional overreach. And if you don't make recovery your priority, eventually that functional overreach is going to get to you and it is going to affect you negatively yep. in your training. So um, I think we, we've chatted about so many uh, key topics in recovery and you've explained them really, really nicely. I think, Davey, you you understood them perfectly. Hey, you know exactly what you need to do not to overtrain now, huh? 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I've I think it's been a topic that I'm interested in, just like uh, nutrition. Um, I think it plays such a fundamental yeah. role. So it's always such a pleasure listening to, you know, you give us this advice. However, I do think you beat around the bush because I do <laughs> look for those direct. Yes, no's, but <laughs> as you said, <laughs> you can't. And I un- also understand, I-, I think it's really important just to note that like everybody is so different and yeah. we all recover differently and our bodies all work differently. And I just find it <laughs> so relevant, you know, what you say, like my recovery time is not the same as Nick's recovery time. And it's, it's, it's mm. you know, we're all so different. So I don't think there's that perfect answer that you're looking for but just so important to understand your own body and understand what works for you and just follow that and don't compare yourself to other people because i just yeah yeah you're on your own journey exactly 100 percent. i mean like yeah i mean you you pretty much summed up what i was going to say because i was going to say like you know my key points or key takeaways i think to everyone listening this would be firstly really get to know yourself you know 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 what your triggers are for feeling really tired and really sore because it'll be different between everyone know how you respond to training that can take time and experience um and then know what your ability is to get that good sleep get that good nutrition and be able to take time off and sometimes accept that you know if you really push hard you're going to need to take the time or say you've had a lifestyle change and you can you can't really get great sleep now you can't get your food and stuff and then realize that what's going to have to happen then is you're probably going to have to change your training and maybe train slightly less hard and that's actually going to be the way that you're going to get the same the same out of your training sometimes you literally need to do less to do it so really just getting to know yourself and then following those things and that's probably you know the most most of us can do awesome and thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and and chat to us about this topic we really really appreciate it and i'm sure the listeners have as well brilliant thanks guys Thank you, Anthony. We'll chat soon. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of Making a Runner. We hope you enjoyed it and found value in the show. Don't forget to rate and leave a review on your favorite streaming platform. And remember to share with your running buddies. Follow our journey on our socials and feel free to engage with us on all things running. We wish you a pleasant run wherever the road or trail may take you. Bye for now.